Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Calvin Beton, our resident tennis coach, and George Belshaw, the tennis writer and broadcaster. I never really know what to call you these days. George, what's your preferred title? What are, you, what are your professional pronouns? Well, I have, um, I have written a piece that will be going live this week for Metro. So, <laughs> that is one, exciting. One to watch out for. It's been a while since. Do you want I've to tease done... what it's about at all? Yeah, it's uh, it's about the Williams sisters for Black History Month. Um, okay, cool. I actually interviewed Calvin as part of it. Um, <laughs> Gosh, how did you track so him you're... down? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was the toughest person I've had. So I've got him, uh, Chanda Rubin. Um, yep. Talking about her experiences, kind of playing them both. Um, got Max Rolander, Annabelle Croft, and. Uh, Mickey Lawler, the WTA chairman. Very good. So um, should be should be good. I think it's quite a it's for quite a long read. That's what they've asked for, and that's what they've got. <laughs> yeah, it's very different when you get start getting paid by the uh, by the word, George. I, I was thinking today. Has I don't know if I've missed something here. Has Venus actually retired? Uh-huh. I don't no. think so. No. no. Okay. But presumably, no. when that happens, we're going to have to go through like something quite yeah like and i haven't got appetite for it it's quite funny because like a lot of the conversations i've had not actually with the people i've interviewed but just other people i was kind of talking to around this piece it's funny how like little is people start talking about venus it's it is quite a kind of strange part of their career now that venus you know should be kind of heralded as one of the greatest of all time and she is but she's been almost so overshadowed by her sister's brilliance that she sometimes just feels an afterthought now. Yeah, I I find it interesting when you look at Venus's career that wait, how much she actually won. And then I found myself thinking, like, well, when did she win all this? Because, like, it seems that, like, Serena came around 
about 18 months after Venus did. But then Venus has this whole career of just dominating women's tennis before Serena did. But my sort of thought was that maybe she had a couple of years and that was it. But how many slams has she got? She got about 12. Seven. Seven. It's only seven. Oh, she right. Only. Seven, right? You know, only. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because it almost feels like Venus in many ways. Like her era was like the start of Serena's era. And, you know, you think about all the people who were around then, like Davenport and Hingis and whatever. You know, that, that's almost the era I kind of think yeah. of of Venus like being that good. But actually, yeah, okay, she's had, you know, time off for the sport, lots of kind of um, health problems that have happened as well. But, you know, she's going to outlast Serena, which feels really odd. I suppose like the weirdest, she did have a couple of slam finals in like 2017, didn't she? Like Australia and Wimbledon when she lost to Muguruza around that time as well. But there's also, though, she's only like a couple of years older as well. Like you say, it does feel like a different yeah, one era. year. One year it's older. one year older, is it? Yeah. But it feels like, like you say, it feels like a different generation as to when she was in her prime. Yeah, I think of her as like four or five years older, just just kind of conceptually. Yeah. Like I don't think of her as one year older, but yeah. But maybe when she retires, we can do a big pod on the, the full relationship. Yeah, we'll um, dive back and pick all seven slam wins. I just hope it's about a year because after Serena yeah. and then Roger, I, I just... I mean, she will presumably retire at the US Open, so I reckon we've got a year. We've lost Del Potro this year as well. I mean, that's three... When was the last time tennis lost three such big names in in one year? Not to say Del Potro is the same, on the same plane as Federer and Serena, but, you know, big for tennis. Yeah, and also, like, hadn't been active for quite a long time. But you could say the same about Federer and Serena, quite frankly. Uh, that's yeah. that's the weird thing, is... is and I get, I guess it happens in individual sports a lot. Like people, and maybe it just happens in sport all over. People don't retire when they're still interesting or good, really, very much. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean seriously. Like much as Federer and Serena did some damage at the end of their career, they both retired like two years after they were really relevant to the game, other than in sort of figurehood. Yeah, Federer kind of joked. Jokes about that, didn't he? Like he was saying, you know, you always want to go out on a high, and I lost my last uh, Wimbledon's <laughs> sixth love. I lost my last match. I lost the Labour Cup for the first time in my last tournament. You know. Well, you know, guys, everybody can't be Eric Cantona. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. If only. It's, um, it is strange though. I was talking. I, I don't know. Uh, for I don't know if any of you guys saw it, but I did a thread the other day on um, tennis trainers from the nineties. Oh, yeah. um, and. It. I got talking with with a friend of mine about McEnroe, about his late era, Mac, late era McEnroe, about the trainers he wore and we used to wear this really thick bandana. Um, and we were talking about how, you know, he was a veteran then and he still sort of made this run to the last round of Wimbledon. Sorry, the, the semifinals of Wimbledon um, when he was really past his prime. And I think that the age that he was was like 32. And you know, it just shows how, how different we look at tennis now. Um, yeah. I think that was 92 uh, when he did that. So maybe 33, 34, maybe. Uh, just talking to trainers, uh, Calvin, that heralded one of the funniest comments on our YouTube channel. Um, we are on YouTube. Uh, if you want to listen to the Love Tennis podcast that way, you can. And maybe soon you'll get some visuals as well. But uh, a guy called Prabesh commented a couple of weeks ago when we had quite an elongated chat about trainers. He said, 
Cannot believe you lot went on about trainers for so long. It was like my girlfriend going on about a thing and completely diverting to another, and I could not figure out how and when the conversation changed. <laughs> and, and to be honest, recording it was a bit like that, because all of a sudden we were talking about trainers for a good, like, <laughs> 20 minutes. It's actually, we, we spoke, I think we spoke about that. We talked about how long they lasted and that kind of thing. And hmm. in that thread that I did, uh, there was a pair that was around about 95 and Jim Curry wore them called the Nike Air Resistance and they were made of like Kevlar um, <laughs> it was specifically so they'd last and they came with a six month guarantee and, and as somebody commented on the thread and I, I may or may not have participated in some of this that some people used to take a sander to the uh, to the shoe after about five months and three weeks to take advantage of the uh, the guarantee and get your your free your, another pair free. Wow! They, they always lasted six months, but they weighed about seventeen kilograms. <laughs> I see. Uh, yeah, do subscribe to us on YouTube, by the way. Uh, Love Tennis Podcast. We do have sixty nine subscribers at the moment, which makes me think I don't want any more because obviously that's funny. But overall, let's make it like six hundred and ninety, and that that would still be funny. Uh, welcome to the YouTube channel this week. George Jimenez, Gustav Fitchard, Ilya Tsis, and Sharon Williams, who may be the next Williams sister, who knows. Um, the other way you can get in touch with us or kind of interact with the podcast is by leaving us a review or rating wherever you get them. You can do reviews now on Spotify, people tell me. You've always been able to do them on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you've done it before and you've not left us five stars... You can always change that review and upgrade it if your opinion has indeed changed. And remember, if you do leave a five-star review, I will read it out. Just as this week did John Blom, the umpire, uh, who you may remember from the Australian Open. He was my star of the Australian Open. He has one of the great moustaches in tennis. He wrote thusly, I recently came across these podcasts and have been working my way randomly through them. My five-star rating is not based so much on a wide sample of listen-to podcasts, but mostly for the kind words in the episode you did after this year's Australian Open final, which I've just listened to. Though I was initially a bit miffed, I must admit, that you didn't know who I was, having worked at all the Grand Slams, done some important challenger finals, such as the Busan Open twice, Bratislava Tampare Kalundra doubles, Bengaluru both one and two and the Taipei Open in 2015 I'm sorry for missing the 2015 Taipei Open uh, you know it's on the bucket list uh, not to mention Chengdu Ningbo Shenzhen Anning Liu Zhu and Zhu Hai in the in a 2019 Chinese clean sweep I thought you might have sorry John I'm sorry Believe me, I know who you are now. Um, he says, I assume these events are not covered in the 164 episodes I am yet to listen to. <laughs> Never mind, the shows are still great with the right mix of banter and humour and tennis insights. So keep it up. Sending you the best and kindest regards uh, from Soul ATP 250 promoted. Take care. Uh, thanks for getting in touch, John. Uh, it's always nice to hear from people kind of on the inside of tennis when they get in touch. It does happen um, fairly regularly. So, um, Great to have a representative of the umpire community, uh, who I think are a little bit of an underrated element. Uh, I do have a bee in my bonnet about Hawkeye and Hawkeye Live and um, all the things associated with that, which I think we talk about every now and again, but uh, maybe we'll get John on to uh, offer a rebuttal to Hawkeye. I think you've left out an important detail about this week's review, James, is that you weren't convinced it was John Blom for a while, and you thought it might be a really bizarre internet troll for a little well, while. Well, I mean, bizarre is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, you, you should, George, as a proper journalist, be sceptical of almost everything. And um, 
you know, <laughs> given that there is one particular reviewer who regularly changes his name and his opinion of the podcast and just updates <laughs> his review, um, I felt it right to be sceptical. But then John um, actually ends up DMing me and we had a bit of a chat. So, um, yeah, no, nice to have you on board, John. And I think because he's just working his way through random podcasts, he might not li- you might not listen to this for a while. Um, but, you know, I don't know, happy Easter by the time you listen to this, perhaps. Let, let's move on, shall we? We've got quite a lot of tennis to talk about, and we're already 10 minutes in, and we haven't even really started. Uh, we're going to talk about Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas, as well as Carlos Alcaraz, who's back in, who has been back in action for the first time since winning the US Open. We'll also chat about Barbora Krajikova, who beat Shontek in a final, and that's no mean feat, as we know. We'll chat a bit about Emma Raducanu and the Billie Jean King Cup. Uh, Francis Tiafo and Taylor Fritz in final action as well, and a little bit of Nick Kyrgios. Uh, we should also offer our congratulations. I believe Rafa Nadal has become a father for the first time. Uh, someone actually pulled me up on the phrase becoming a father for the first time. You don't need to say for the first time, you can only become a father once. After that, you're a father forever, and once you have the second kid, you're still a father. A two-time father, you might be able to call him. Uh, But there is only one place to start this week, Novak Djokovic, picking up his second title in a row. He absolutely dominated things in the Astana Open, apart from perhaps the semi-final, which we will talk about. He beat Christian Garin, Botic van der Zandschulp, Karen Hatchinov, a victory over Daniil Medvedev by walkover, and then... Three and four, he thrashed Stefanos Tsitsipas in the final. Uh, I believe that is the scoreline by which he always beats Stefanos Tsitsipas. I, I could be wrong about that, but there is some weird record about him beating Stefanos Tsitsipas three and four in finals, I believe. Um, it's happened at least twice before, I can tell you that much. Uh, George, a, a really dominant week for Novak Djokovic. His second pretty dominant week in a row, having won the title in Tel Aviv. Um, well, what do we take away from that? It's his 90th ATP title, well on the way to the Jimmy Connors record, which I know has drawn a few comments on the old YouTube as well as on Twitter. Uh, what do you take away from this week in, in Astana? Um, quite a lot, to be honest. I think the big question we had about Novak last week was, okay, the competition wasn't really there. Was he going to be really pushed? Um, and it the field in Astana, you know, for, for whatever reason you may think this is the case, well, was it really strong? It was probably oh, hang on, close let, to let's a not pussyfoot draw. around this, George. As <laughs> as you may have actually read in an excellent New York Times article article by Matt Fudderman um, over the last week or so, if indeed you have a subscription or a way of getting around the New York Times subscription, Kazakh tennis is extremely well moneyed by uh, an extremely well off man. It is indeed, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, it's these players are being paid to be there. Like let, they're let's being not, paid then, a, you know. a, a ton of money, I'm sure. But um, yeah, look, he so with anyway, regardless of how they all got there, there were lots of very good players, um, and it was a pretty competitive field. I think we we wanted, you know, before the Medvedev match, I think we all felt this would be a good indicator of what Djokovic's level actually is because he's not really had to play. Um, well, I mean, even at Wimbledon, he's not played who you'd call in the bracket of the top, top, top players, you know, like top, Alcaraz, top, 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 top Medvedev, Nadal. Um, okay, Kyrgios wasn't great for him. He's a fantastic grass court player, but he's not traditionally been going kind of that deep in the slams and was a first final, etc. 
Um, so yeah, I think I think this was a good week. The Medvedev match was brilliant. It was obviously a really jarring end, but incredibly high quality second set tiebreak. Um, and I thought Sissipas played like fine, played pretty well, dumped, hit well off the forehand, and Novak was just kind of getting on top of him, returning amazingly well. It's in one of those weeks where he's sort of like Pete Sampras served bot as well, and that's a pretty pretty unbeatable combination. So yeah, I think I think we. It's just strengthened my view, and I'm not going to be too nice to Novak this week because I upset one of our listeners uh, on Twitter, didn't I? Um, but yeah, he he was very good, and I think he's clearly coming back with with the bit between his teeth. And if he gets to Australia, I'm still fairly convinced he'll be the man who'll pick up the title there. Yeah, big if getting to Australia, of course. I mean. It- Calvin, do you think that it matters? Because we're kind of used to these guys turning up to tournaments and and running through them, but in latterly they haven't turned up to these tournaments at all. Do you think it's still valid to say to Novak Djokovic, well, you know, he comes and crushes these guys at two fifties, and that that's still something of an achievement, albeit maybe achievement's the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like, there's plenty of them who would turn up and just lose and you know peak at the right time. I'll be honest, I don't read loads into it. Um, the only match I would have read something into was the Medvedev match. Everyone else I expect him to beat. And, mm. you know, I, I know that he's he's in the mix with the best players in the world now, which I would say are him, um, Nadal when he's fit, Medvedev and Alcaraz. Mm. And I think he's massive favourite against anybody else. So I don't really... I haven't read much into the last two weeks at all. He's done basically what I would expect him to do 19 times out of 20. Um, I'm just a bit disappointed we didn't get to see how the Medvedev match played out. Yeah, as as we kind of alluded... I think we could have had a real good read on where he's at. As we've kind of alluded to there, um, Daniil Medvedev pulled out of their semi-final match after the second set... Uh, he had lost the first set and then won the second in a tie-break. Djokovic, uh, sorry, it's the other way around, wasn't it? Medvedev won the first set, Djokovic won the second set tie-break and gave it kind of quite a big roar and, and, you know, a big Edemo and it looked like we had a really intriguing third set in in a tournament that that maybe wouldn't necessarily have, um, I don't know, wouldn't necessarily have expected to see it. And then he wandered to the net and kind of, grabbed Djokovic's hand and said, no, no, that, that really is it. And it was weird, George. I don't think I've ever seen Djokovic look, or really anyone look quite so kind of puzzled by a retirement. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it's, it, it must be quite a hard feeling when you like, he, you know, he was celebrating big, clearly trying to pump himself right up for this third set, trying to, you know, you know, you're probably just trying to psych out your opponent as much as anything else. Like, look, I'm back, baby. I'm going to, come and slaughter you in the third and then your friend's like yeah all right mate you just have it then <laughs> you're kind of just taking yourself up to big heights and uh chopped down by him not wanting to be involved i mean it, it, it was really strange because i just didn't even clock anything like during that tie break there wasn't really a moment i know i think maybe said it was like the, was it the second point he says it he claims it happened or yeah you know, he said it was quite early on you know medvedev Djokovic played a brilliant start to the tiebreak, but Medvedev clawed it back to five all. It was and was playing some really, really fantastic stuff. You'd never have kind of said he's he's got some sort of problem. Um, so yeah, it was a shame. It was a shame. I mean, you know, I, I think 
uh, without moving away from this too much, I think it's a bit weird that we've got to this stage now where we don't even consider like a win over Sissipas as good. Like that, that's quite a damning indictment. Is I, I'm not saying that like from I, I don't disagree with what you're saying there, Calvin. But you know, it's funny how we've gone from this place where a couple of years ago people were like, oh, he's He's someone who can go really far in the tour. He's going to win slams. Do any of us think he's going to win a slam now? I mean, he, he just seems so... He played He played fine against Djokovic and yet never looked like he was going to come close to beat him. I, I think he's... Is he... I was going to say he hasn't progressed as a player in the last two years, but do you think he's even as good as he was 18 months ago? That was the guy who got to the French Open final. Yeah. I think, he, I think he's hitting his forehand really well. Like, that, to me, has become somewhat more of a weapon it's just the other sides of his game just haven't progressed i think his forehand i don't know i mean you know i'm not an expert you guys know a lot more about this than i do but just kind of looking at the numbers i think his forehand has become more more potent but less reliable consistent yeah that's probably a fair assessment to be fair it it seems like he's become more of a risk taker on his forehand um for, for whatever reason and you know that that may be deliberate. That may just be the way his game has evolved. But I don't know. I I would struggle to like give. This is going to sound really kind of wanky, but I would struggle to give sit to pass like a game identity at the moment. Like if you if someone says to you what sort of player is Stefano Sitsipas, I would. I mean, George, you you may be better at this, but I would struggle to kind of key into it. I think you know. Yeah, I'm trying like. The, the match that really I thought was going to be a big turning point in his career was that one where he fought back at the Australian Open against Nadal. I thought mm, that was yeah. going to be, you know, that first kind of five-set win. You think, right, this guy's going to go on now, take that next step forward and start really kind of challenging. And to be fair, he then did take that next step forward, got to the French Open final, got himself two sets up against Djokovic. Cacked it. And he, he's not been the same since, has he? I mean, he really hasn't. I mean, if we're talking about kind of stylistically what what he's about you know he's always been good he does have a good serve when he gets it in he does have a big forehand but as you say it did used to be a bit more of a kind of controlled big forehand whereas it is massive now i was really taken aback by some of the speeds it felt like you know just from an eye test felt he was hitting against Djokovic but there were moments he is just just wailing on it out of nowhere running around he loves running around his backhand return trying to take that inside out forehand just keeps keeps missing it and i think players are just cottoning on to everything that's about him they feel they can get at the backhand we've always said defensively the backhand's not good enough um i don't know it just feels like he's a guy people have figured out and i'm not really sure what he's changing tactically and and mentally he seems frail now which you wouldn't really have expected from that guy who kind of came back against Rafa you know that was meant to be the big mental push and it's just not not happening for him at the minute I, I mean I, I would suggest that mentally that was rather the exception that proved the rule like you know he's always been someone who you kind of think you know that Kyrgios match at Wimbledon this year was exactly the kind of match that I would try and play against him if I were you know, a professional tennis player with the ability to get under someone's skin. I absolutely would try and get under someone's skin. And he he kind of does the same, right? Like, he, it's sort of the toilet break thing and the the coaching stuff. Like, it winds other players up. And 
I'm all for that. I'm all for shit housing in tennis. I think it's funny and it's you know if if you can get away with it, the rules, why not? It is. It, I mean, he does do a lot of shit housing, but it's never like it brings him any wins. Probably the, <laughs> the toilet breaks against Murray were the only time. Yeah, like the stuff against Kyrgios, it cost him the match. He tried the same thing. He tried the same thing. But the Kyrgios thing, Kyrgios, Kyrgios took it to him there. Kyrgios took the shit housing to him. Yeah, but then and... he started that nonsense trying to hit him with the ball when he could have yeah. passed him on that huge point. Then he did the same thing when he played Draper in the summer and he lost yeah. that match. I think was that in a tie break. Uh, I think he just time. lost. I think he just lost it against Kyrgios. I think he, his head completely went. Yeah, but he's happening a hell of a lot, isn't it? And mm. he doesn't seem like you know. He doesn't seem like he's. I don't know the word. I would say stable. He's probably a perfectly stable lad, but on the court, he just doesn't. I thought even at Lever Cup, he just seems awkward in those. He doesn't situations. have the bubble. You know, I I think it's so important as a player, like to be able to. And sports psychologists will talk about it a lot. Like creating stability is a word they use. Creating familiarity, and you know, Rafa is the king of it. Everything that Rafa does is to create familiarity and stability for his psychological mindset. And players are always trying to do that. And I feel like Sitsipas hasn't worked out how to do that yet. But also, like, I mean, his dad, he's got his dad as his coach. Is his dad any good as a coach? I was just going to say this. He feels to me like he's just someone who needs to pull away from his parents, doesn't he? I mean, uh, we've spoken around it before, haven't we? But there was that weird, weird, weird press conference where his mum came in and was like asking him questions and stuff. And you're like, this is so odd for like a 20 year old man to be having his mum mm. sitting there, like, aren't you lucky to have your mum coming around on the tour with you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, it, it is a weird life being on tour and stuff, and you do need kind of close people around you, but. I've always just thought, and particularly now, when you're seeing no real tactical evolution kind of happening in his game, no kind of addressing of these weaknesses. If I were him, I'd be pulling the trigger on a on a postulos and uh, trying to get in someone else who can have a look. I don't know if there's a way of getting around that backhand though. I, th- I think he's probably. I don't see what you can do on it. It's mm. not a good shot, and there's not. You can't reshape a backhand at 24 years old. <clears throat> on the coaching front, just just to kind of note that there have been new faces in the camp this year. Thomas Enqvist was working with him yeah. for a couple of months earlier in the year. Mark Filipoutis has always been kind of in and out, but he's been a lot more visible uh, in the camp over the last couple of months. He at Wimbledon, he was on court with him almost every day, and you know he's always been like quite a big part of his development, but has been much more formally into it. So there is kind of movement there. Yeah, but again though, like. Are they good coaches? Is Philippoussis a yeah? Philippoussis a good, good coach? I I've never. I remember when he was playing, and I, I never once heard him say anything compelling and interesting about the sport. Mm. He just had an absolute cannon, and he didn't make the most of his own ability. Uh, Philippe yeah, Pousse. and I guess I'd be I'd be kind of thinking, you know, this is a very simplistic and reductive, but. You're almost looking for the Severin Luti in Federer's camp, or the Vider in Djokovic's camp, or the you know Uncle Tony in Nadal's camp. You want that kind of day-to-day presence rather than just some kind of bloke who's come in and saying mental things to Sissipas. Yeah, I'd, while we're saying the mentality is maybe not there perfectly, I think I think there's actually bigger, more fundamental changes that need to happen with his game and tactically that I'm not really sure will work with just kind of ex-pros 
Chubby in. Not so ex pros can't be good coaches, but I think he does need that kind of really specialist day to day workhorse coach, if you like. Get Calvin on board, obviously. <laughs> it's offside. Be a workhorse there, Jack. Journeyman. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of them's a fair and just <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the thing is, though, with I guess the whole family, it kind of there's an element that there's a lot of I don't know if cutting corners is the right word, but like he's a he should be a brilliant tennis player, and he's dicking around with these stupid like toilet breaks and that kind of thing. It's like twelve and under stuff. Mm. You know what what you're doing, but also at the same time, like the business with his brother where his brother seems to be now sort of focusing on being a, a double specialist, but they haven't sort of put him there and gone, right, make make of your career what you will on a natural course. They're getting Stefanos to put him in doubles tournaments, enough doubles tournaments that they'll get enough decent draws down the line, and Stefanos is such a decent player that they'll pick enough wins up. And now his brother's ranked like, I think, 180, and he's nowhere near the 180th best tennis player in, on the doubles circuit. Hmm. I mean, I, I should interject on behalf of Vicky Giorgiatu, who is um, the best Greek tennis journalist and always says to me whenever I see her, she says, you know, Petros, he's not that bad. He's not that bad. But I know that you would disagree with that. No, no, no. No, listen, he's not. The lad is he's a, he's a lovely kid, he's Petros. I know him relatively well. And he's not a terrible tennis player. And I don't know where he could have gone. Maybe down the line he could have he could make it as a doubles player on his own. But the way they've gone about it is not how you should go about developing a, a tennis career, other than if you're looking to take shortcuts. And I just think the whole family, with with Stefanos, with his dad, and with Petros, there's an element that they're just trying to get there in a in a in a different way than what they ought to be if they want to make the most of their careers. I'll tell you who the next logical Stefanos Tsitsipas coach is. It's Patrick Muratoglu. Well, he's um, he's nice. involved, isn't he? Well, yeah, he, I think he basically just trains there, right? Like, yeah, he does. That's what they all do. Yeah. But, you know, it's if he was time, winning, if he was winning now, um, Patrick <laughs> would claim that he's coaching him. <laughs> George. Is there any extra pressure? I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but kind of coming from a country like Greece, does that add a little bit kind of extra on being so. that kind of first player coming through? You know, he's a massive, massive star there. Do you, is, is there anything in that compared to a... I don't know. I mean, normal in, tennis nature. I, I don't think so. No, you know, I really don't think there's any real pressure there. I don't think you feel that. I tell you, who uh, would be interesting, if, but I don't know. I can't think of a name. If, there, if only there was a top-class one-handed backhand, recently retired player who might fancy staying <laughs> in the game and coaching an elite-level top ten. Dominic player. team hasn't retired yet. <laughs> I can't think of anybody though. Um, just okay. we're, we're just running out of time, but uh, before we go, just to answer your question, George, funnily enough, I asked two different people this last summer, almost that exact question, um, one of whom was Maria Sakari and the other of whom was Yelena Ostapenko, and they both gave quite different or similar but different answers, and Maria Sakari said, well, I'm not back in Greece very much, and when I'm there, I can still kind of walk down the street and people don't bother me too much, but then... With the French Open run, that really changed things. And it actually took a bit of adjustment, you know, when she went back there. And it did affect her a bit. But then she kind of learned how to deal with it. And, you know, she says that people are never really um, intrusive and they don't make her life difficult. Whereas, like, Yelena Ostapenko was like, yeah, I'm a national hero at home and I bloody love it. 
Like she she absolutely owns it, and and she just she just enjoys the idea that she is. And I think also because Latvia compared to Greece is an even smaller country, she really is flying the Latvian flag, you know, all around the world. Uh, admittedly, Greece has is still a small country, but Latvia is a proper minnow. It doesn't have many big sports stars Greece has a few you know tennis is still not as big as as basketball there as football there um whereas basically because of Yelena Ostapenko like Latvia is a tennis country now because they love Yelena okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. I'm James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. The man from Yorkshire is Calvin Beton and the Midlander is George Belshaw. Uh, we've been talking about Novak Djokovic, Stefanos Tsitsipas and a bit of Daniel Medvedev as well. I meant to incidentally just kind of insert smoothly, but instead I'm going to do it like out of place. And as a reminder, just Daniel Medvedev's explanation of his injury, which I know a lot of people saw kind of online. Uh, he said, it's the second time in my life I've retired like this with a pulled muscle. So here on the second point of tiebreak, I felt a strange pop in my adductor. I thought it was maybe cramp after the point. I was like, it's probably not cramp. I don't know what is fair. If I won, I would not have played the final. I was like, okay, just try to hit some shots. If I manage to win the second set, well, I'll retire. If I don't manage to win the second set, I'll retire. Um, he, We're not clear. He's going to have a scan. and We're not clear on his status for the rest of the season. Um, he, of course, I'm just trying to think, is he already qualified for the race or is he pretty not, close? Not quite, I don't think. But oh, There you go. He is, he's, would... he's fifth in the race, so he's virtually guaranteed. Uh, so he will be hoping to get fit for Turin. I want to move on, though, because we talked lots about ATP and not a lot about the WTA, where Barbora Krajikova, the French Open champion, beat Iga Svantec in a final. She's only the second person ever to do that, I believe, at the 19th time of asking. Um, a really great final as well. There were match points for both women before finally uh, Krajikova got over the line. Uh, George, th- this is interesting, isn't it? Because I think we had, maybe not verbally, but there are a lot of people thinking, a lot of people saying on Twitter, where they're always very quick to judge, that Barbara Kajikova was done. She was a one-hit wonder, won the French Open, consigned her to being a double specialist once again. And she's really <laughs> proven that she's absolutely not. That's back-to-back titles in Tallinn and then Ostrava beating Shontek 5-7, 7-6, I, I don't know who was saying that. that, that oh, first George, come on. Twitter was James. full of it. Twitter. Mm. Twitter. No, the I, old Twitter sphere. It's all social media. 
I mean, I know, has had, you know, big injury problems um, the last six to 12 months. But for me, she's mentally as sound as anyone up there apart from Fionte. Like, I genuinely think she's as likely to win a slam as anyone else on the tour is not eager Fiontech over the next 12 to 18 months. I think she's proven herself time and time again to, to a be a very good player, but B be pretty steely and quite consistent when she's, when she's fit. So I think for people to kind of write her off as a one hit wonder, cause she's had quite significant injury problems is, is, is very harsh because actually I think the, the body of evidence suggests to me that, you know, you probably say signature bore in there as well in terms of consistency, but of the rest of the pack, um, I, th- I think she's she- she's very very likely to go deep in majors. And I expect her to be someone no one wants to face at the Australian Open. Uh, her run, incidentally, in Ostrava included beating Belinda Bencic, albeit that was by walkover, so it hardly counts. Uh, but she <laughs> did beat Shelby Rogers, Alicia Parks, who I know has been in good form. Uh, and Elena Rabakina, uh, the Wimbledon champion, in both the semi-final and the final, she came from a set down to win a close second set tie-break and then came through in the final set, which George, as you mentioned, does suggest a kind of mental toughness. And remember, in her title in Tallinn, she beat the top three seeds in a row. Beatrice Hadadmire, Belinda Bencic, who did turn up for that one, and Annette Kontovite in a very dominant performance in the final. Bencic couldn't face... Meeting her two weeks in a row, that's what she pulled nah, out. She's bottled like, it. I can't, can't do this again. Can't bottled this it again. in a massive way. Um, and, and actually, as someone who was there when Krajikova tried to defend her French Open title um, and watched her like sob her way off the court after being beaten by Diane Parry, I'm quite glad to see her playing well again. She, she basically wasn't remotely fit. She'd had an elbow injury. She'd barely played uh, in the... In fact, she hadn't played, I think, competitively for three months in the build-up to the tournament she then revealed well she then got covid i think the next day um so overall it was a pretty miserable french open defense do you think she's a positive i mean i always hate saying is x or y good for tennis but given that there are lots of other players out there who people will be able to name and spell is it is it a good thing to have barbara kajikova like you know bouncing around at the top i don't know I think it's good to have anyone who can consistently rival Iga Sviantec, else we're in danger of just having an era where we sit around and think, all right, Sviantec's going to win this, then that's that's great. Obviously, marvel at her greatness, but also be like, well, everyone else is rubbish, aren't they? So why is she actually that good? You know, that's always the kind of the narrative that, that pervades when that happens. So, you know, I'm actively hoping, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Kuchikova or Goff or, you know, Jabor taking that next step, uh, which I, I don't think she actually can take. But, you know, I think Kuchikova and Goff have the games that are capable of challenging Sviontek in big, big matches. I don't think they're as good as Sviontek, but I think they're the sort of players who can beat Sviontek when she's having a bad day. And there's not many of them out there at the minute, <laughs> to be honest. Do you think, Calvin, that she... I mean, she's what? She's 26, I think, now. And it's obviously won something like six Grand Slam doubles titles. And I think, you know, the first of them was four years ago. Do you think she's got a real advantage over the field that is the top 15 at the moment by just having so much experience under her belt in top-level tennis, singles or doubles? 
Uh, yeah, and also she's therefore played a lot of matches with a lot of pressure on them. Mm. Um, but I think her main attribute is she's just a quality tennis player. Mm. Um, you know, she she really is. She's probably aside from Svantec, she's probably the most complete player on the tour as well. When she's fully fit, she can do everything. Mm. Um, it's staying fit that I think will be a problem, and in. It's a bit of a catch twenty two for her as well, because like the best way of staying fit would be probably to play less matches. But she plays doubles. She's probably the best doubles player in the world, mm. female. So it's whether she wants to stop doing that to play a single. But she really loves playing doubles. George, what if you if you're a Barbara Kozikova's agent tomorrow morning and you have yeah. this big conversation, what's the plan? I keep playing both. I I think she's someone who genuinely is there just because they love playing tennis, which, you know, and they love winning and she will win doubles titles. You know, they're a great pairing. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell someone to stop playing doubles for fear of not having <clears throat> another five years on the end of your singles career when, you know, you can, you can win lots of slams and you'll, you know, you just have to look at like Kyrgios and Kokinakis this win. They they absolutely loved winning the Australian Open. Just winning a double slam is still a fantastic, wonderful thing for you know, it shouldn't be downplayed because it's not singles. Um yeah, so I definitely say just keep going. George would be the worst agent on the agent circuit. Every, every, every single agent I know would say, stop playing doubles. You I, I'd say that publicly, make, Calvin, make but behind more the scenes I'd be like, stop, stop, stop. Give me the dollar. Make me more money winning loads of singles Grand Slams. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just keep playing doubles if you really enjoy it. <laughs> I would also say that, it, you know, just thinking about this, is it good for women's tennis or whatever, it's also quite good to have, like, another Czech girl at the top. Like, I sometimes think, oh, do we have too many Czech women in tennis, in, in, you know, the top 20 or top 50 of women's tennis? But I actually think it's quite good to have this, like, one powerhouse where you can, say, build a big fan base. And, and a bit like what I was saying with Yelena Ostapenko and, and Latvia, if you can make, like, a country that is absolutely passionate for the sport, it, it sort of creates, you can kind of osmosize that into other countries and you know if you can hold good tournaments in the Czech Republic and I know they haven't this is my big problem actually is that the Czech Republic just churns out incredible female tennis players but whenever I watch a tournament in the Czech Republic I'm a bit like why are there not more people here like I don't know Calvin you've been to the Czech Republic for tournaments I mean what why is there not more kind of passion for this sport that they're so clearly very good at um I don't know I mean I've been to I've only been once I went to Prague last year um and the club was, you know, there's a good club atmosphere. You know, there's, you always tell where there's like good clubs. The, the way to tell if, the, if clubs are busy is they have a menu, what you can <laughs> eat there uh, and, and proper food. Because they've got a chef, which means in, if in order to employ a chef, yeah. they're busy enough to do something rather than just having the barm and put some toasties on. Um, <laughs> and, and that club in Prague had an extensive menu yeah. of decent food. So I assume they've got a good club culture and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a strange one, isn't it? Um, maybe it's again, maybe it's because they, they don't have loads of male players since Burdich went. Yeah. Yeah. Other than uh, Lucas Rizal, who I know you've got a very specific opinion about. <laughs> it's not just me who has that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Yuri Vesely. The great Yuri Vesely. 
I mean, to be fair, you say they haven't got, like, a great male scene, and not at the top of the game, but there are a couple of guys who... Coming through, I think might do some damage. Oh, there's always, there's always loads of play. You know, they've always got plenty of players in depth and that mm. kind of thing. I'm talking about a, a real, you know, like Burdich was one of the uh, the very best players in the world for a while. Yeah, not many players can boast Yuri Vesely's record against Novak Djokovic. Uh, yeah, but he's also world number ninety nine, George, and I think that's pretty much. It. He'd be world number one if you played Djokovic every week. <laughs> <laughs> Well, quite, and let's just let's all be thankful that that doesn't happen every week. Um, interesting to see how Barbara Krajikova's season goes from now on. I'm pretty sure she is going to be. Uh, well, I'm, I know that she is currently leading the doubles race. I don't think she's going to make it for singles as well. Although stranger things have happened, she's 20th at the moment, so she's going to need an absolute miracle. Um, despite those two titles in a row, but she will be in Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, for the doubles. Um, one person, sorry, Calvin. I was just thinking there on that, I was thinking about that earlier, actually. Do we think, like, for the year-end finals, is there a call for having, like, wild cards for certain situations? Because it definitely makes... The tournament is definitely better with Krajikova in there. The tournament's definitely better with Medvedev in there, and both of them are not in there specifically because they've not played the full season. Well, Medvedev almost certainly is going to qualify. But say he doesn't. Say say, say he had had to have an extra month out than what Mm. he did, and we'd have ended up without him in there. I I think, yeah. It's a good point. Kyrgios could have been in there, couldn't he? You you probably, yeah. I mean, mean, if we had a wild card, I think Kyrgios would be it, right? Like, if if there were a wild card in the men's, You'd yeah. say the Wimbledon finalist who doesn't get in w- would be the wild card. I mean, there kind of is a wild card, a, a sort of de facto one, because if you win a Grand Slam, you don't have to finish in the top eight. You only have to finish in the top 20. So that's the sort of fail-safe. Like Djokovic, depending on exactly what he gets up to over the next month or two, probably won't qualify in the top eight. But he he is now guaranteed to be there because he's a Grand Slam winner and he's guaranteed, I think, to finish in the top twenty. Yeah. He, he's actually not down to play again before the ATP Finals. I wonder if he is will he take a wild into, card. Is he not going to play Paris? Oh yeah, sorry, excuse me. He's not allowed to play anything before Paris. Sorry, um, but that, even that's kind of surprising because he normally rocks up to the, either it's Vienna or what's the other one, Basel. Basel. It's Vienna he normally plays, I think. But I wonder if he will take take a wild card into one of those. Just to keep keep racking up points. If you can't guarantee you're going to get the slams, it, you may as well take the points where you can get them. There is a decent. There is like a a big wild card available in Basel. So yeah, I mean you'd think they'll keep that open as long as they possibly can. Um, hmm, I don't know. We'll see. It, you'd think, given he's not played that much tennis, and given it would kind of cement his ranking for next year as well. You'd think he, you know, he he's still he, was he world number seven at the moment? Like that's not where he wants to be. He doesn't want to go. I think he might be like ten in the race or something. Yeah. So he probably wants to bump that up, obviously. But he doesn't want to go into like the Australian Open, assuming he plays it. I know that this week in Australia, there's been some suggestion once again that his ban might stand and he might not be there. But he doesn't want to go into Australia and be like the number seven seed, does he? He doesn't want to play. You know Carlos Alcaraz in the what quarterfinal, or, or play Nadal in the the quarterfinal. That'd be it, while he would expect to win. It would be a pain in the backside. So 
if he's fit, you'd think he might just try and pick up as many points as possible and then and then head to Turin in some some good nick. Obviously, he's, he's chasing the Connors record now, which I'm more and more persuaded he's actually going to do after back-to-back titles. Yeah, a few comments on YouTube about that this week. Um, just pretty split, actually. I think I think people are not quite sure uh, whether he might actually make it, but it'd be interesting to see to see how he goes. He's obviously still quite some way short. He's got a couple of years to go, I would think. Uh, let's move on, uh, because Emma Raducanu has been in the news today, in fact. She was named in the Great Britain squad for the Billie Jean King Cup, which gets underway in Glasgow on the 8th of November. Uh, she was named alongside Harriet Dart, Katie Bolter, and Heather Watson. One more space to be filled in that team. Uh, we would expect Katie Swan, who's in great form. I think Katie Swan's only lost once since Wimbledon, I think I'm right in saying. She's absolutely flying. 13 wins in 14 matches. She won a title in Slovakia. Uh, yesterday, and she also got to the semi-final in Chennai, uh, as well as picking up a title in the US. So she's been going very well, and you'd expect to see her in the fifth place in the team. Uh, we didn't know whether Emma Raducanu would make it into the team because she has been struggling with a wrist injury. She pulled out of her... Well, in fact, she called an end to her WTA season um, by pulling out with that wrist injury. She may yet play the Billie Jean King Cup. I know she's been named, which would suggest that she will, but they can make changes up until the day before. Um, so I would think that everyone involved will want her to stay in the team for as long as possible. I'm not being cynical and saying they're going to try and sell tickets off the back of her name, but I suspect that she will do everything possible to play. Um, George, we've, we've talked about injuries so many different times but maybe just looking forward to next season because her season is basically over we don't expect great britain to have much of an impact uh frankly on the billie jean king cup finals what's her kind of i asked calvin this question i think while you're away what's her goal for next season what's a, a valid goal given that she's currently i think world number 68 uh i mean if we're talking in terms of ranking for me, there's no reason she can't push into top 30 by the end of next season. I think that's a realistic goal. I don't think that requires that much consistency in the women's game at the minute. Um, I think what I'd be looking for more broadly is just more stability. I'd like to see her stick with a coach for a year. That would be nice. I would like to see fewer injuries a bit more robustness um that's not me criticizing her for getting injured that's just me saying you know the reality is she needs to develop herself and learn to deal with the rigors of the tour so seeing her not withdraw from matches and tournaments would obviously be a positive step um i'd like to see a bit a bit more to her game in many ways i seen a few matches she played this year kind of in the run-up to the US Open where she was hitting the ball how I would call properly again and I was really enjoying watching her I think she's an electric player when she when she is on the front foot I still think that's the best of her is when she's kind of going for it not being passive I've seen her in too many matches just put the ball back in landing short court and then good players have kind of swatting her aside like a fly um 
so yeah, I think, you know, a bit more robustness, pulling up to be around top 30 and, and being positive on court in terms of playing style would be the, the three things I would look for most. Uh, we know the goals that Calvin has set here, but I want to ask you something different, Calvin. Um, I, I wrote something which I kind of spoke to you about uh, before it came out and um, that the LTA announced last week. Uh, people might remember that when the Emiratikana US Open final against Fernandez was uh, broadcast on Channel 4, they paid Amazon an amount of money which was undisclosed, but it was a seven-figure sum. Um, I would guess it's around two to three million pounds, just... Um, using some intelligent guessing. Amazon said that that money would be reinvested into women's tennis, that Raducanu herself would have some input into how that would be reinvested. And they announced last week exactly how they would be doing that. Um, It's called the Prime Video LTA Youth Girls Programme. It wants to create a lasting legacy for Raducanu's victory. It's going to fund a whole load of free equipment for new players so any girl who turns up to any of these sessions that the program will fund will get a free racket some free tennis balls a free t-shirt i mean i'll do almost anything for a free t-shirt so if that's not enough incentive i don't know what is and they're also going to run a series of training sessions uh, for coaches up to 200 of them um to kind of create a more girl specific uh, coaching framework now of course we have one of the country's leading coaches uh, on our podcast to talk about whether he agrees or disagrees. Now, Cal- Calvin, you work with lots of girls. Um, I know through obviously the the county cup stuff that you do with Yorkshire, um, and as they have through your career. Is it true to say that tennis does lose girls at a certain age? I guess all sports do, right? Um, yeah, it also loses boys as well. It's not that all boys stick in it and girls fade away from it. But it loses, probably loses girls a bit more, I'd say. I wouldn't say drastically more. I know a lot of lads who pack in playing tennis at the same age. Mm. Um, and and yeah. is it is it the same age? There's not like a different age where, where you tend to be have a breaking point? or. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it's, But then again, it is. But then again, it could be anything between 13 and 17. I'd say tennis has a spe- tennis in Britain has a specific problem with girls. And this is before I worked with the lads who I work with now. I ran a program at an indoor tennis center in um, in Batley, just outside of Leeds, and it has a problem. One of the problems it has with girls, not leaving the game, but in terms of moving on and losing a bit of interest for it, is is specifically the American college system. Right. Um, in that, I don't know whether people know this, but um, the college system with the scholarship system that they run in America, there's more money available for scholarships for females than there is for males. That's specifically because each college has to has to allocate the same amount of money across all sports for females as they do for male sports. Right. And but the men have an American football team, which okay. takes up about sixty players. So you need to find scholarships for that. Therefore, the tennis scholarships, it's very difficult for a male player to get a full scholarship to an American university. Mm. Uh, it doesn't happen. Whereas the, they can't give them away at colleges in America. So basically what you get, how that feeds back into, into Britain is that most players are encouraged to go to American colleges. The, the lads 
are fighting to get the best scholarship they can possibly get to save to get themselves another couple of hundred quid a week onto their scholarships the girls figure out around about the age of 15 they're getting a full scholarship anyway <laughs> they don't really have to and i've seen this first firsthand it's happened girls kind of lose interest they know they're going to go to university that's what they want to do but they already know they're getting the full scholarship so their interest wanes and what you get then is very few of the girls then play tennis after they've left american uni it's very interesting um what do you i don't know whether you've heard more since we chatted like a week ago about what the lta are going to do with these kind of female specific sessions they're trying to set up i mean do, do you think that it will make a difference do you think it's coming from a good place i know you were kind of skeptical when i spoke to you initially yeah i i don't really I, it's not something i buy into because in my experience that as i said to you on the on the phone when we spoke last week james that kids are they're just different people in my experience there's nothing that you you, you can't pigeonhole all girls the same all girls like to do this all boys like to do this they're just different people. Some of the girls are similar to some of the lads, and mm. some aren't. I don't get this idea that girls go in; they, they want to go where their friends are, like that. That's not my experience of coaching female tennis players, girl tennis players, at all. That they like doing certain things that the boys don't like doing, it, it, and that some of them that they only like going to sessions with girls. That's again, that's not my experience of fifteen years working with boys and girls um and you know they're, they're just you know kids are just different i don't think you can say all girls want to do this all boys want to do this and this is how we need to coach them mm -hmm. I, you know i've i've never liked to blow my own trumpet at all but i've done pretty well with girls i've coached two british number ones uh under 16s and under 18s i never had any specific how to coach girls um instruction mm. Will you be applying for this course, Calvin? Uh, no. <laughs> I was going to suggest to you that you go in as our mole and, and leak specific details. Never mind. A, From a what he's just gone. said, it it sounds like me. Calvin's got the resume to lead the course. <laughs> He'll be banging his door down. No, but you, you don't... I, I, I think it's good that they're making an effort to do something. In my opinion, it's targeted in the wrong areas. Mm. I, I, I think... Yeah, and it's what you want to do. Do you want to? Do you? Are we just trying to keep girls in the game, or are we trying to make good tennis players out of I them? I think this is what kind of bothered me about it. Just reading the kind of bump around it was, and I spoke to you know lots of people off the record about what was trying to be achieved, and I didn't get much of a sense that it was we want to produce ten more top one hundred players by you know, converting 100 to 300s into top 100s, or we want to get 20,000 more players playing the game at grassroots level and that'll filter through. It just felt like we're going to put lots of more money into it and we'll get more good players. And you know the thing what the LTA, and I listen, I feel comfortable saying this, it always cracks me when people refer to the LTA, because I always ask them, who do you mean? Yeah. Like there. But what the LTA participation department, they always continually get wrong and they repeatedly get it wrong. They focus on getting new players in. They think that is what participation is. And we have this thing again. And I know it heard you say it just then, James, providing equipment for them. We're going to get them equipment. We're going to do starter sessions. What happens when those starter sessions are done? Yeah. What happens when, you know, when you've given all of your 300 rackets out and then, and then those players decide that they, you know, what, what if, what if 
25% of those players decide, we want to stay in the game here. We want to keep playing. There's yeah. nothing for that. They always rank participation as new players starting to play. That's how the LTA always do their figures. New players coming in. But what happened to last year's new players who now don't have anywhere to go? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so important. Like, you talk to anyone who works in sport development. I know this is quite technical, not necessarily super engaging, but you talk to anyone who works in this, in, as you do, Calvin, and I talk to people across all different sports, and it's always about, and it sounds boring, creating a pathway. Like, it's genuinely like thinking about how someone progresses with the game. And it's like, okay, yes, as you say, they've done that first six-week course one summer. How are they going to play once a week? Because school aren't going to do it. And they're not going to join a club because that's a bit too much commitment. Where's that secondary stage? If, if they, the way that I would go about it, they've got to find a way of putting women's tennis on television. That's a way to do it. Women's tennis, the rights for the WTA wouldn't cost a fortune now. They get, they've got to get it on the television. If you've got to, if you've got to make it visible, girls, 12 year old girls are not going to go searching through the Amazon menus that take 20 minutes to get to a tennis match. The, in my, again, I'll come back to my experience. The biggest increase in participation I have ever seen in a sport. And I might've mentioned this on the podcast before was in 2005 when England won the ashes and it was on channel four for the first time it came off of sky that summer tennis lost about 60% of its players because they all went to play cricket. Jeez. And that's because it, everyone watched it. And I realized the world has changed a bit then. I'm not saying that all girls sit and watch tennis now. Yeah. If there was a tennis, say for example, if there was a WTA, even just the quarter semis and finals on channel four every other week, I guarantee you'd improve your female tennis participation by about 200%. Yeah. And and you only have to really look at what, like, and I know people in cricket, lots of them hate the 100, but it, the, having the women's game alongside it and giving the women's game lots of prominence on the BBC and with free streams on YouTube, it, it I mean, I play for a cricket club where girls' participation numbers are just going mental because it's visible and girls are going, oh, we've got, role. you know, if you can see it, you can be it. I, I say that a lot and I genuinely think it's true. If you're a kid and you see someone who looks like you doing something, you feel you can do it, George. I'll tell you where I always think tennis misses a massive trick. And I think this is kind of a being a young boy when I was, cricket used to have like highlights on the BBC kind of later night for some of the kind of the t20 world cups yeah. or something and i'd watch all these highlights of like malinga and mcgrath and warn and i wasn't a big cricket fan at all but i remember fondly watching it i remember um that famous xylophone piece of music which is slipping my mind i always just think tennis has never nailed a highlights package the whole time oh my god ever it's so bad so so it's because i can't remember which way around it is whether it's the WTA or the ATP, I'm pretty sure it's the WTA. The those like the, these highlights packages, a lot of them are automated, so they go on YouTube and it's run by AI that picks points, not at random, you know, and it will pick like some quite exciting points, but it doesn't pick significant points. It picks like a great point at 15 all two two. And then, like, the next highlight is, like, in the second set. 
mm-hmm. and you don't you know they're not cohesive and it, it's inf- honestly george i'm right there with you it's infuriating I think as well, you know, even I mean, I've used cricket as an example. There's a much more recent one. Look at uh, the women's football over the summer, and again, it was on BBC. If you'd have that, if that tournament would have been on Sky, there wouldn't have been as much interest in it. If no. it was on Amazon, there'd have been zero interest in it because <laughs> uh, no one would have tuned in. But it was right there on terrestrial television, and yeah. girls started wanting to play football. But I'll say this about about the program again. Look, we don't have a shortage of entry level development coaches and good entry-level development coaches in britain there's loads of them there's absolutely loads of them in every town what we do have a shortage of is good high performance level coaches who take the players to the next level so just developing more entry-level coaches is for female players is i I don't know i I don't i'm not buying into that yeah i mean just one final point on the broadcasting but you know, what was the most watched tennis match last year in the UK? Radicanu's final, lobbed it on Channel 4. They got the exposure out there. People know who she is. They still go on about who she is. They are all wondering where she's gone because yeah. of that one match. Like, being like, okay, there was a bit of Wimbledon as well in the summer. We shouldn't take Wimbledon for granted. But tennis really needs to find a way of just... People's the rest heads. of the year. People, hey, look, people used to always ask me, what, what do you do? Your job's only about two weeks of the year. It's only Wimbledon. <laughs> you know, people have no idea. This is the longest season of all sport. It's crazy. Um, it's the question I get asked the most. So, tennis coach, <laughs> do you do that full time? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm actually an electrician. I just said I'm a tennis coach. For the love of it. Um, no, look, if there's cha- look at channel, there's nothing ever on channel five. It's the biggest waste of a cha- channel ever. If, if I, the LTA went to channel five, here's no, but if they just went to channel five, went here's I don't know how much it costs. Here's two million buy the WTA rights for the next two years. Yeah, that'd be the best way to spend the money. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if the LTA paid for it 100%, but I get, I mean, so one of my good mates is the deputy head of scheduling for channel five. And like I often have a go at him about them. Like they put boxing on, but they only put like the last two hours of the card on. I yeah. always have a go, and he's like, "I'm not going to put like something that I know doesn't rate on my only main channel on Saturday night prime time." But tennis, you could fill a lot of airtime with tennis it's in the afternoon as well. It's yeah, in the afternoon, WTA finals. You know, like what? WTA final in any European city is on Sunday afternoon. I'm not sure there's loads of stuff on Sunday afternoon. Are you telling me the people who sit around watching the Antiques Roadshow and Doctors wouldn't just watch tennis? People I don't watch think the Antiques Roadshow is on Channel 5, in fairness. <laughs> Not Channel 5, but I just mean in terms of like daytime broadcasting. I just yeah. refuse to believe that if those things are what people are watching because they want to watch them, then that is a sign that anyone will watch anything that's on in the middle of the day who's right. watching it. We're running out of time, so we're going to do some quick <laughs> hits on people I promised that we'd talk about. Um, Taylor Fritz beat Francis Tiafoe, which is significant for a number of reasons, partly because it meant that he became only the second player this season to win a 250, a 500, and a 1,000-level event in the men's game, along with Novak Djokovic. He also won two tie-breaks against Francis Tiafoe, who was on an insane run of something like 14 tie-breaks in a row, which is completely absurd. Um, one word answers. What number in the world will Taylor Fritz be this time next year? George first. Oh, God, that's a hard one. So he's up to eight now, right? Yeah, he's at a career high of eight. 
thanks to that title. I mean, I I do like you know. Sorry, Crikey, this one word answer is already quite long. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll go eleven. Calvin, twelve. I'm going seventeen. I'm not buying it. Uh, which is also not a one-word answer, so I apologise. Uh, Nick Kyrgios, he was in action in Japan as well, but he handed his opponent a walkover with what was described as a knee injury. He also had to pull out of the doubles as well. His opponent was, of course, Taylor Fritz. Uh, there has been a little bit of movement in his legal case in Australia. This is pretty complicated stuff, and I, I have written something for the eye um, about Nick Kyrgios's legal case. Uh, I I would urge you to read it because it will do a better job uh, because I spoke to a couple of lawyers in Australia um, who really know what they're talking about and explained quite nicely what the big issues are. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the case specifically, but there are two things you kind of need to know about it. Um, one is the charge, which is common assault, um, which is it's what, what was described to me as the lowest type of assault charge. Um, it's There is a more serious offence of... Um, assault causing actual bodily harm. Uh, common assault suggests that it's been uh, an assault without marks or injury left. Um, so it's known as the kind of lowest form of assault in Australian law. Uh, Nick Kyrgios's lawyer has said that they're going to apply for a Section 334 application. Uh, it means that they think the case shouldn't go through any further legal process uh, that they think it should effectively be dismissed. Um, the lawyer I spoke to described it as more of a diversion from the legal system, not a kind of, I'm diverting away from this case, but a diversion. Um, he said it basically is like a, a mental illness defence, um, which you might be more uh, familiar with in the UK. Um, they think it's more appropriate to discontinue the criminal proceedings. The judge might ask for... Um, the applicant to undergo some treatment or some uh, specific mental health course of uh, treatment but um, essentially the case would be dismissed now that's all I think we're going to say about it it's active criminal proceedings you'll understand that we can't really make any comment on it I would hate that this podcast be responsible for a trial as unlikely as it might seem uh, for a trial involving domestic violence to break down so that's all we're going to say about it um, it seems like a slightly bum note to end the podcast on, which is why I'm going to offer George the opportunity to give us some any other business. Uh, the only other thing I did want to say that we kind of missed out on was, and I don't, I don't think we mentioned it unless I've uh, blocked it out, but Alcaraz um, Correct. lost his first match as US Open champion and world number one. Just wanted to, I guess we could do quick one word answers for this. Blip in the road or a sign he can't handle being the top of the pile? Well, so he lost a lucky loser, David Goffin, which is particularly kind of funny. Um, it was his first match in 63 that he hadn't even managed to win a set, I believe. And I, I'm trying to remember that I think that only two other men have lost their first match as world number one. And I think it's Leighton Hewitt and his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero. I, th- I think I'm right in saying that. Um, what was the either or question, George? Uh, can, basically, can he handle being number one or just a small yes. bump in the road? Yes, he can handle it. Calvin? Yeah, I... on, that, on that one, James, um, <laughs> Patrick Rafter is the only player to have never won a match as world number one. Wow. Because he never played one. 
<laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, he was well number one for two weeks and didn't play uh, in those two I'm, weeks. I'm fairly sure. I'm fairly sure Murray's quite up there in terms of worst statistics as well, number one, like in terms of match win. Well, because he basically flogged himself to death <laughs> getting there, and then and then didn't have a whole lot left. Um, on those bombshells I think we have to end thank you so much for listening as always to the Love Tennis Podcast I hope you've enjoyed it if you have drop us a follow on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod email us lovetennispod at gmail.com leave us a rating leave us a review if you don't do any of that make sure you come back next Podcast Network.